Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. Following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the evening service of Sunday the 22nd of February 2015, entitled The Master's Motivation. And the Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 to 38. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. Matthew chapter number 9, if you would please. Matthew chapter number 9. And while you're turning, let me just share something with you by way of introduction. A number of years ago, I was in this country. I was not here at this church, but I was preaching uh, for Brother Tom um, down at uh, Milden Hall. And uh, how many of you remember Brother Tom down there? Dr. Tom Adams, anyway. Maybe some of you know him. Maybe you don't know him. Anyway, evidently you don't. But anyway, I was down there preaching for him. He pastored a church that was made up of uh, almost exclusively American military personnel. And Brother Tom is one of those guys that likes you to sit up on the platform with him. And uh, he wanted me to sit with him, which I do not like doing. But anyway, he insisted that I do that, so I did. And uh, all during the song service, he'll do this. He'll lean over to you and he'll just pull Point people out in the congregation, not in an obvious way, but he'll just say, hey, you see that guy over there? And he'll describe what he looks like. I said, yes. He said, well, this is what he does in the military. And then to come across to the left, he said, you see that guy back there? Yes. He said, well, this is what he does in the military. He's an OSI agent. I didn't have any idea what OSI stood for, but he explained very quickly what OSI was. Then he came back over here to the right. He said, you see that very tall, very fit looking guy about uh, halfway back on the extreme right hand side of the right part of the auditorium? I said, yes, I see him. He said, well, that guy's name is Stu Johnson. He said, Stu is an F-15 fighter pilot in the United States military. He said, I want to introduce you to him after the service is over. Well, sure enough, as soon as the service is over, he took me over to Stu. And Stu is about six feet, two inches tall, which is very tall for a pilot having to sit in the cockpit of that aircraft. But Stu shook my hand and he was one of these guys, Brother Carl, that when he shook your hand, you knew you had your hand in the hand of another man. He clapped out on my hand and almost crushed it. I said, man, it's good to meet you, but back off just a little bit. I mean, if you would. And of course, we laughed about all that. Stu said this to me. He said, Dave, have you ever sat in the cockpit of an F-15 Strike Eagle fighter jet? I said, no, I've never done that. He said, would you like to? Again, my classic response is this, can fish swim? Yes, I would love to sit in the cockpit of an F-15 Strike Eagle fighter jet. He said, okay, here's the deal. He said, you've got to give Pastor Adams your social security number. Everybody in my country has issued a social security number. He said, you've got to give that to Pastor Adams. He's going to turn it over to me. He said, they're going to submit that and they'll do a brief background check on you. And if everything passes in the background check, they'll let you on the base on Wednesday. And I'm going to let you sit in the very airplane that I fly. I said, man, that is cool stuff. So I gave him my social security number and I guess I passed because on Wednesday uh, they drove me over to the base and I met Stu at the front gate and Dr. Adams and I got out of the car and the first thing out of Stu's mouth was this. He said, now Dave, here's the deal. You're going to see a lot of stuff today as I take you on a tour around the base, ultimately allowing you to sit in my airplane. You're going to see a lot of things that's going to arrest your attention. You're going to want to wander off and look at things. He said, I'm going to ask you to resist the temptation to do that for this reason. He said, we're under a heightened threat level on the base. It's called Threat Con Bravo. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. Delta being the most extreme. He said, we are at Threat Con Bravo. It's not exceptionally elevated, but it is elevated a little bit. He said, if you go off by yourself and I'm not with you, some military police are going to show up. They're going to handcuff your hands behind your back and they're going to carry you off and put you in a thing we call the brig or prison. And he said, there's not going to be a whole lot I'm going to be able to do to help you. So stay with me all day long. Folks, can I tell you, I stayed right with Stu all day long. He went to the toilet. I didn't have to go, but I went with him. I just want you to know, wherever he went, where I went, all right? Well, the first thing we did was go into this building that from the outside had a roof on it that arched from the tarmac here all the way over to the tarmac over here. And the building was completely empty for the most part, except for where those chairs are over there. There was what looked like a a little makeshift rack that had what looked like a bomb hanging from it. And I looked over at that and I said, Stu, is that a bomb? He said, it is. He said, I don't know if you remember during the 91 Gulf War, whenever the United States uh, tried to uh, liberate Kuwait, he said there were these bombs, and I, I would see them every day on the news. They would do a little report and they would show this. These bombs that would photograph their target to the point of impact. 
He said, that's one of those bombs over there. He said, if you'll go look in the front of it, he said, there's a glass eye in the front of that thing. Behind that glass eye is a little mini camera. That is called a smart bomb, and it will photograph its target, the thing it's going to hit, all the way to the point of impact. I said, no kidding, that's one of them. Well, I walked over and looked at it. Sure enough, if you looked at the right angle, you could see the little mini camera behind the front glass eye. Well, as I'm doing that, Stu said, come on, Dave, we've really got to pick, pick up our speed. Got a lot of things to see, a lot of things to do. Well, we left the building, and we started down what's called the flight line and there's airplanes f-15s lined up one after the other and we got to the third one in line he reached down and picked up a ladder and hung it over the edge of the cockpit he said you go up first get settled down in there i'm going to come up and stand on the flight ladder beside you and i'm going to let you ask questions about anything in the cockpit i said really he said yeah so i crawled up the ladder got down into the cockpit forgive me i shouldn't have done this as Stu's coming up i'm pretending you know i'm flying that plane and i'm going you know like i'm shooting stuff you know i mean it was absolutely awesome Stu comes up beside me to my left. I quit all that foolishness. And Stu said, now, Dave, again, here's the deal. I'm going to let you ask a question about anything in the cockpit. He said, some things in here are top secret. That means this. If you ask about that item, I'm not going to be able to answer it. But he said, if I can't answer it, I'll try to answer the question. I said, Stu, my first question is this. There's a little yellow thing here and a little yellow thing here. What are those? He said, man, don't touch those. Don't touch those. He said, you're sitting on a live ejection seat. If you push down and pull up on those yellow things, you're going to be shot out of here at about 200 feet per second. He said, you're not strapped into the seat. There is a parachute on the seat. If you're strapped into it, when the seat gets to a certain level, the parachute automatically deploys. But he said, you're not strapped to the seat. So at some point, the seat's going to cease going. The parachute's going to, not going to deploy, but you're going to keep on going. So don't touch those. I said, Stu, let me tell you something. I'm going to change places with you. I'm going to stand out here on the flight ladder. I'm going to let you sit in there as you answer my questions. He said, are you serious? I said, I'm serious as a heart attack. We're changing places. I wouldn't know what to do if that thing just accidentally went off and I got shut out of here. So we changed places. Stu's now sitting in the cockpit of his own airplane, and he said something to me. He said, Dave, do you understand the public in general does not understand what we do in the military? I said, what do you mean by that? He said, Dave, what I mean is this. The public in general has very little of an understanding what military people do. He went on to say this, and folks, forgive me, I've never forgotten it. He said, part of my pilot training involved a lot of strenuous exercise. I said, Stu, I believe that. The way you shook my hand the other night, I believe that. I said, Stu, I'm curious. As you're sitting in that cockpit and you turn the stick on that airplane and you're pulling four to five Gs as you're making a tight turn, how much pressure is being applied to your body? Now, this is what he told me. I don't understand this, to be honest with you. He said, there are times when I turn that plane in a tight turn, he said, literally, there will be several thousand pounds of pressure per square inch on my body. He said, I am wearing, when I fly that plane, a suit called a pressurized suit that literally when you pull certain Gs, the blood all goes out of your head and wants to go to your lower extremities. He said, when you do that, this plane will automatically kick that suit into operation that I'm wearing and it will squeeze my legs. It will squeeze my legs here and my ankles and keep the blood up in my brain so I don't pass out. I said, well, let me ask you this. At 2,000 pounds of pressure per square inch, how do you even turn the stick on that airplane? He said, well, you spend a lot of time in the gym pumping a lot of weight. I mean, it was an amazing thing I learned. What really gripped me that day was this. He said, also part of my training, in addition to the physical training, there was a lot of mental training. He said, I was showed pictures, Pictures of former pilots that had been shot down in an enemy zone. He said, Dave, do you understand whether it's the United States military, the British military, no matter what the country is, if a pilot is shot down over enemy territory, do you understand he's a prize to the enemy? He said, what I mean by that is this. He said, some of the pictures I saw, and again... I'm not trying to make you sick, but I just want you to hear what he had to say. He said, I was showed pictures of guys who had been captured in Vietnam, maybe North Korea. And he said part of the thing that was done to them was this. They would be tied together, their wrists, with a rope. The other end of that rope 
would be thrown over a low-hanging limb and pulled straight to the ground, stretching the pilot upward to where he is forced to stand on his tiptoes. And in that position, they would put around the pilot's head a contraption that kind of looked like a bird cage, has a hole in the bottom of it about the size of an adult man's neck. There's a hinge in the back of that contraption that allows it to be opened up and then placed around the pilot's head. And with the pilot suspended in that fashion, he's now wearing this device that has a little trap door over here. The trap door is opened and inside to that device, inserted through the trap door, is literally a starved, a starved rat. And he said to me this, he said, Dave, they will walk off, the enemy would, and leave a pilot suspended that way. And he would literally have a rat, forgive me, try to eat through his ear canal, up through his nostrils, through his eye socket, trying to get to his brain. He said, Dave, I've seen pictures of pilots who ultimately, when their buddies got there and cut them down, of course the pilot was dead, but he had turned his body toward the trunk of the tree, the limb of which he is tied to, and literally he would kick his feet against the trunk of the tree, trying to stop that rat from eating into his brain. And he said, Dave, I'm not telling you, not just the ends of their boots were kicked off, the ends of their feet were kicked off. And then he said this again. Dave, the public really doesn't understand what we do in the military. Why are you telling us that, Dave? Listen to me, I want you to hear me. I gained a whole new appreciation for what military people do what they go through. I understood really for the first time a thing that we use in our country. I'm sure you use the phrase in your country. It's called military sacrifice. I understood what those that serve to keep us free sacrifice and we don't really know much about it. The reason I'm really telling you that is this. Not only do we not understand military sacrifice, I'm going to be candid with you. For a long time, and even to this day, I don't have by any means a perfect understanding of this, but I'm here to tell you, I didn't understand for a long time the greatest sacrifice. What Jesus did, and why He did it when He died on that old rugged cross. What motivated Him to die that way? Why would Jesus come to this sin-cursed earth why would he allow his own creation to stretch his arms out and nail him to a cross? Why would he do that? What could possibly be the motivation? By the way, I looked earlier to a dictionary and looked up the word motivation. I want to give you the definition. Motivation is designed this way or defined this way. That which incites to action that which causes movement or purpose, the dominating idea in an individual's life. Can I repeat that? Motivation is that which incites to action, that which causes movement or purpose, the dominating idea in an individual's life. Now, I want to ask you something tonight. I want you to think this through, and I'm going to be very brief. I want us to look at what motivated Jesus to come to this earth. And then I want us to ask ourselves, am I motivated by what motivated Jesus? Am I incited to action? Am I moved? Do I have a purpose in my life that is identical with the purpose for which Jesus came to this earth? You say, Brother Dave, how are we going to know that? I want you to look at Matthew 9, if you would please, in your Bible. Matthew 9, and I want you to look, if you would please, at verse number 36. Very simple verse of Scripture, but it simply says this. Matthew 9, 36, but when he... Jesus saw the multitudes. He was moved. The word moved literally is the word from which we get the word motivated. He was motivated with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Can I put it this way? Jesus came to this sin-cursed earth. Jesus was motivated by one thing. And it's found in verse 36. When he saw the multitudes. Multitudes of what? Literally, multitudes of people. By the way, the word multitudes in the Greek language can mean one of two things. When he saw the thronging masses is one way the word multitudes can be defined, literally from the Greek language. The word can also mean this, the rabble, the R-A-B-B-L-E. 
vitally important you understand. Thronging masses. That describes the size of the group of people Jesus saw that day. Large in number. But rabble. The rabble. That describes the disorganized nature of the group of people Jesus saw this particular day. So here is Jesus. He looks out. He sees a group of people large in number but disorganized in nature. And he is moved with compassion on them. People. People. Let me ask us something. Are we motivated by what motivated Jesus? Yesterday we went down, and I know I keep referring to this, but it moved my heart. We went down into the city and we passed out gospel leaflets and the young people sang beautifully and people were attracted to that. In fact, Faisal, the one that Brother Steve prayed for, is a Muslim man who was attracted to what was going on, stopped, was viewing all the material on the table. There's a couple of leaflets that address uh, the Muslim faith and how a Muslim can know God and how they can know they're going to heaven. Boy, he honed in on that one. He said, what is that leaflet about? I said, well, let me give you one. And so I gave it to him and he opened up and looked at it and we began a conversation that lasted for about 20 minutes. At the end of it I asked him a very simple question. I said Faisal, I'm going to recommend a couple of books to you to read. Will you promise me you will locate them and read them? He said, I promise I will. I think he was telling me the truth. I said, I'm going to ask you to do one other thing as well. I picked up a Bible off the table. I said, Faisal, I'm going to give you this Bible. I want you to take the scriptures, this book, and I want you to read it. Would you be willing to do that? He said, oh yes I'll be willing to do it. It's obvious he had read the Bible some already. Folks, look, I don't know about you, but my heart was stirred yesterday by the multitude of people that were going by. Almost all of them don't know the Lord. Are we motivated by what caused our Savior to come to this earth? Hey, guys, young people, let me say something. This conference has been wonderful this weekend. I love you enough to tell you this. If all you do is go back home and you say, man, we had a great time. Brother Kistler, you know, tells some funny jokes every once in a while. And man, he's a nut. He's a wild man. I mean, he actually gets excited about what he says. If that's all you remember, though, that's okay to remember that. But if that's it, may I say this? We've missed the point. What I've come here praying God would do is simply this. Ignite the hearts of some of these awesome young people and cause you to be willing to become motivated by what motivated Jesus. I have prayed this. Oh God, touch the hearts of some of the more senior and seasoned ones among us. And by the way, I am one of you. Brother Larry, I've noticed this. As I've gotten older, the group that I enjoy working with has gotten older with me. Have you noticed that? I mean, I used to love teenagers. You know, I still love them. I mean, I love them. But I used to love spending all my time with them, you know, because I was young in my 20s. And I had all this energy, you know. And you said, well, you've got energy now. Man, it was crazy back then. I mean, I just would do everything they did. But I've learned something as I I've gotten older to 55, Brother Steve. The recovery time is so much longer now from the injuries you sustain from doing the crazy stuff with teenagers. So I have to be careful about what I do because I've got other places to go and other things to do. But the fact of the matter is this. I have been praying both for the young people and us older folks that we would be motivated after these days by what motivated Jesus, which is people. People. When he saw the multitudes, people, he was moved with compassion on them. Watch this. Because, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Now he's mentioned a second thing. Not only people, he's mentioned now their predicament. What is their predicament? They're fainting and being scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Wow, there's powerful analogies in there. I wish I had time to explain. I'll not go into it in much detail, but I will say this. The analogy there is to a sheep without a shepherd to protect it. Do you see that? He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as a sheep without a shepherd to protect it. Have any of you ever seen this on maybe a, a nature program on television? By the way, when we went to Africa, I've been there, as I said, twice to Nairobi. Both times I was privileged to do a safari. The first time and the second time I saw some of this, an animal tracking another animal. Have you ever seen maybe a lion track down a sheep that got separated from the flock of sheep and it's isolated and on its own? Have you ever watched an animal track and stalk an animal like that and literally pounce on it and with its powerful jaws clamp down on the neck of that innocent sheep and then do this, begin with its powerful neck and jaws to shake that sheep from side to side, fling it and toss it from side to side till it shakes it to death and then drops the carcass and takes its sweet time consuming it? Do you know literally that's what this is, verse is talking about? 
Jesus saw people as fainting and being scattered abroad, literally tossed violently from side to side as a sheep without a shepherd to defend it. Do you know yesterday, every time I watched Brother Larry hand out a gospel tract to someone passing by, and again, people would do this. No thanks. Do you know every one of those dear folks that could sometimes, sometimes be rude? Preacher, did you get upset at their rudeness? Not at all. No. Because through my heart and through my head is going this thought, they're a sheep without a shepherd to protect them. Are you motivated by what motivated Jesus? Look at your Bible. Verse number 37, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. You know why folks came by yesterday and said this? We don't see this done much anymore. Boy, this is a blessing. There were Christians, a few Christian people stopped by and said, Oh, this is awesome what these young people are doing. And you know what? It is awesome. But I'll tell you why it is so awesome to them. Because they see it so rarely. They see that so rarely. In my country, there's a church almost on every corner. Hickory, North Carolina. Last time I checked, you saw it, didn't you? Yes, you did. When she came to our house and to our country a couple of years, year, year, two years ago, she traveled around with Brother Larry. And you, it's not like that here in England, is it? There's churches on every corner. You know what you would think? With all the people, Miss Rifka, in America that profess to know Christ as Savior, you would think there would be a mighty army of people out there sharing the gospel and leading people to Christ. But tragically, in my country, we're not motivated by what motivated Jesus. We're motivated by stuff. How many of you know what stuff is? It's what we call it in America, Brother Carl, stuff. Stuff is what is in my garage back in North Carolina right now. By the way, I cleaned that entire garage about a year and a half ago. Before I left to come over here, I went to check a door on the garage to make sure it was securely shut. And I walked in and, Brother Steve, my stuff was like rabbits. It had had offspring. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, where did all this additional stuff come from? We got rid of a lot of it, but there's more in there. You know what we are motivated by in America? Our stuff, our material possessions. Folk, all of that stuff's going to burn up one day. Why aren't we motivated? What motivated Jesus? People in a horrible predicament. By the way, the one mistreating people is the wicked one, the devil. You know, the Bible says the devil comes for no other reason but to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. The devil does not love people. He hates them. The only one that loves them is Jesus. And we ought to be motivated by the heart of our Savior to love them as well. Watch your Bible. Not only people in a terrible predicament. Watch verse number 37 again. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, the laborers are few. Watch verse 38. Pray ye. Therefore, he's talking to his disciples. Pray, disciples. Pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest, that's Jesus. Pray, disciples, that I'll be able to send forth laborers into my harvest. Why did Jesus come and die on that old rugged cross? People, their predicament. Number three, a plenteous harvest. People everywhere that need the Lord. Pray, disciples, that I'll be able to send forth laborers into the harvest. Now, I want you to watch, and I'm done. Please watch what I'm doing. I'm going to put my mitts by two hands on the back of this chair and I'm going to hold on. Would you mind coming helping me for just a second? Would you, would you mind? Yeah, would you please? What I want you to do, and I want you to be as rough as you have to be to do it, just, just don't hurt me, okay? All right? Now, uh, stand around this way if you would. I want you to try to pry my hands off of this seat, all right? Just do whatever you got to do to pry my hands off, all right? Go, go. Are you working? Are you, are you sure? <laughs> Thank you so much. You may be seated. All right, I had, a, I had a leg up on him there because I got a real good grip. He's pretty powerful, though, by the way. If you, what, if you had tried a little more, he was coming, okay? The fact of the matter is this. I had my grip on something with great difficulty. He was trying to gri- get my grip loosed. Now, watch. How does that apply to this verse? Pray you, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will be able to send forth 
laborers. Do you know the word send forth is a word that literally means to do what you were trying to do? Literally that I can get the grip of someone off of one thing so I can push them out into what really matters. See, in my country and in your country, the vast majority of people have got their grip on stuff. My material possessions, that's all that matters to them. Jesus says, disciples, here's what I need you to pray. That I can get people's focus, people that know me as Savior, off of what doesn't matter, the stuff, and on to what does matter. Which is a lost world that needs a Savior. Again, my heart was stirred yesterday as I watched a table with some type of elastic across there to, to keep the literature on the table if a windstorm came up. I told Brother Steve, I said, man, you've thought about every contingency, brother, you have. I mean, you, you need to be designing stuff. I mean, that was pure brilliance. I mean, it was awesome. He's thought it through. Can I tell you, and again, I'm not trying to just lift up my brother here, but I do love and appreciate him. Can I tell you why he's thought all that through? While he's got everything together, where he can compact the speaker and the, the cords for the microphone and all the tracks and everything into a thing that he can roll away and roll in. You know why he's got all of that together? Because that's a motivation to him. He loves it. And it was obvious yesterday, brother, that you do. Again, we've all got imperfections, but I'm just saying this. He's motivated by what motivated the Savior. And that's people. Brother Larry, till the day I die, and I've been out witnessing with a lot of people, but to the day I die, I will not forget what we did yesterday. In the cold, watching those young people sing, listening to Brother Steve preach, handing out gospel literature, talking to folks and sharing the gospel. I'll carry that with me to the day I die. It was awesome. Let me tie it all together and I'm done. I said something to the young people, I think it was yesterday afternoon or last night, about this ISIS entity that's sweeping across the Middle East. They have beheaded several Americans. They beheaded folks from other countries. Most recently, they've committed two heinous acts. Number one, they burned a Jordanian pilot alive in a cage. Brother Carl, I watched that entire video. It was gruesome. But I felt like I needed to watch it because I have to inform people in America what's going on. It's brutality in the extreme. Their most recent act of terror was committed when they lined up according to the reports. There's now some question, did they use some some technical things with filming to make it look like 21 people when maybe there may have only been 6 to 8 to 10 of them. I don't know if any of you have read this, but I've been getting some reports about that. The bottom line is this. What is not up for debate is the fact that they beheaded. They beheaded some Libyan Christians, excuse me, Egyptian Coptic Christians in Libya. Took knives, cut their heads off. By the way, I'm not recommending necessarily you do it, but I did watch all of that. Yesterday evening when I got home, there was a video that had been posted online of the brother of two of those 21, whatever it was, that were killed. There was a brother of two of those men that were beheaded. And a reporter asked him a question. He said, I understand you lost a brother in that brutal beheading along that beach in, in Libya. And he said, no, I didn't lose a brother. I lost two brothers. And he gave both of their names. Remember the Larry, he gave part of their testimony, how much they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said this, the reporter did. He said, are you angry? Are you angry at the men who perpetrated that crime against your two brothers? Now, folks, listen to me. I'm just going to tell you how I feel about this. I'm made out of the same stuff you are. When I've watched this stuff, Brother Larry, I'm sorry. It starts in my feet, and it works upward like a thermometer, and I get angry over the way they've treated these people. Is anybody with me? It makes me angry. We ought to be outraged. That is heinous. That is evil. I expected the brother to respond that way. Let me tell you what he said. Am I angry? In part. But he said, to be honest with you, the other part of me is not angry at all. Think of this, Brother Carl. 
He said, those men issued my brothers into the presence of the Lord. Their act, in a sense, escorted my brothers into the presence of the one they love. His name is Jesus. You know what that was like to me? It was like an arrow going through my heart. Is there a time to be angry over injustice? Is there a time to be angry over atrocities that are committed? Yes, but the bottom line is this. we got to get way past that. What this guy was saying is this. Those men who killed my brothers have an eternal soul and they don't know Jesus. And the bottom line is this. They need to be reached with the gospel. And you know what? They do. They do. Brother Dave, were you right in your anger or was he right? Bottom line is, he's more correct. See, that man's motivated by what motivated Jesus, which is people. In a terrible predicament and a plenteous harvest that's out there, people that need to know the Lord everywhere. I said to you yesterday, at least the young people heard this, a couple of weeks ago, two Muslim young ladies came to faith in Christ in one of our meetings. They are not the first. A number of years back, I was in Eugene, Oregon. My brother-in-law, Abe, my wife's brother, is a wonderful Christian. He lived next door to a Muslim gentleman by the name of Sam Kamkar. Sam is quite an intelligent young man. His daddy actually flew airplanes in the military for the Shah of Iran before the Shah was deposed back in the 70s and the Ayatollahs took over the country of Iran. My brother-in-law reached out to Sam and reached out to Sam and said, Sam... I care about you, my friend. And Sam, of course, just did what some did yesterday. I'm not interested, not interested, Abe. But see, Abe lives next to him, so he has to see him about every day. And Abe just kept this up. Man, I care about you. Sam was working on his car. Abe would go over and say, man, is there any way I can help? Sam was an Oregon Highway patrolman at the time my brother, brother-in-law met him. And every night when he had come home from work, my brother-in-law's wife, Karen, Abe's wife, Karen, would have a meal prepared for Sam and his wife so that they didn't have to do anything. They both worked very, very late hours. And they just kept showing them the love of Christ, the love of Christ. And finally, my brother-in-law, Abe, said to Sam, he said, look, my brother-in-law, Dave Kistler, is coming into Eugene, Oregon. He's going to be preaching at Westside Baptist Church. I want you to go with me. Will you promise to go? And Sam said, I'll go on Thursday night. Thursday night, Sam and my brother-in-law walk in. I could pick out Sam immediately. He looked very uncomfortable in church. He had never been in a Christian church in his life. He's a Muslim. He sat right here in that church the entire evening because I preached on Bible prophecy and Jesus' return. And Sam's eyes looked like giant plates as he was looking at me and he hung on every word. I mean, it was amazing. He didn't take his eyes off of me the entire night. When I gave the invitation and asked the question, like I've asked all this week, if you're not sure you're going to heaven but you're concerned about that and you let me pray for you, would you lift your hand? He lifted his hand. Now, I did something I've not done this week, and I don't do this a lot, but sometimes I do. I looked down and I said, if you lifted your hand, and I didn't identify him, everybody else had their head bowed, but I said, if you lifted your hand and you know who you are, I want to ask you if you'd just lift your head and look at me. Sam looked right up at me and I said, Sam, I want to ask you something. I didn't use his name, but I looked at him and I said, I want to ask you, were you serious about that? Are you really serious about where you're going to spend eternity? He nodded like that. I said, okay, if you are... I'm going to put at the back of the church auditorium, the pastor, his name is Greg Kaminsky. Brother Kaminsky started walking to the back. I said, if you're serious about that and you'd really like to know more about receiving Jesus, would you be willing just to get up? Man, he was right on the aisle. It was easy. Would you get up and go to the back and meet Pastor Kaminsky? Boy, he got up just immediately and went to the back. My brother-in-law sensed him get up. He got out and went with him. And for about 20 minutes in a counseling room, they shared the gospel with Sam. When they came out of the counseling room, the service was over. People had begun to leave. In fact, most people were gone. I'm standing out in the foyer, and Sam comes up to me with my brother-in-law. I shook his hand. I said, man, thank you so much for being here tonight. I hope the service was a blessing to you. He said, man, I've never been to anything quite like this. I said, well, you're welcome to come back tomorrow night. That's all he said. As he started out the door, I said, hey, can you hang on a second, Sam? And I turned around and off the table, I had one of our children's CDs. And I said, Sam, I want to give you this as my gift to you. He said, I'll pay you for it. I said, oh, no, no, no. I don't want you to pay me for it. It's my gift. He said, well, thank you so much 
and walked out the door. That night I went to our trailer that we lived in that we pulled behind a truck and traveled all over America in. And that night my wife and I prayed for Sam. The next day I was up on top of our trailer because I had a leak on the roof. And Carl, I was trying to prepare, you know, repair that leak when uh, the phone rang and someone came outside and said, Hey, Dave, you got a phone call. It's your brother-in-law. So I got off the ladder, went into the church building, grabbed the receiver of the phone. I said, Hello. And my brother-in-law, Abe, said, Dave, are you sitting down? I said, No. He said, Maybe you should. So I grabbed a metal chair, sat down. He said, Dave, listen to me. I just got a phone call from Sam Camcar. He said he just got saved. I said, run that by me again. He said he just got saved. I said, tell me what happened. He said, well, he went home last night, slept kind of fitfully, didn't really sleep well. He was under conviction. He got up and got in his Oregon Highway Patrol car to drive to work. And on the way to work, he took that CD that I'd given him, put it in the CD player of his car. Listen to this. Only God could work this out. The first song on the CD was the song my children had sung the night before. He listened to it and later told me, later that evening when he invited me to his home for dinner so he could tell me personally, he said, Dave, that song brought back everything you had said the night before and the last thing I remember was when you said this, if you really want to know Jesus as your Savior, if you really want Him to forgive your sin, if you'll call out to Him from your heart and just ask Him to forgive and save you, He will. He said, I drove my, 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 my Oregon patrol car into the, the, the highway patrol compound. I'm sitting there waiting to get out and go into work. He said, I burst into tears. I'm crying. A guy comes by, knocks on my window and says, Sam, are you okay? He said, yeah, 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 I'm fine. He said, after that guy left, he said, I just literally looked up and said, Lord, if you will do what Dave said you will do last night, if you will forgive me and if you'll come into my heart and save me, I'm asking you to. He said, Dave, it was like something literally was cut off my back a weight that I'd been carrying, and Jesus came into my heart and life. Could, could I hear an amen right there? That night at his home over dinner, he explained the whole thing. He said, now this is going to cost me something. And By the way, it did. He drove to Portland the next week and told his dad, I'm a convert to Christianity. His dad said, you no longer exist. You are no longer alive. For a good 10 years, Brother Larry, he would not say much publicly about his conversion for fear of how that would affect his wife and his two children. About a year and a half, two years ago, he called me and said, Dave, I'm ready to go very public. If you want me to be on your radio program that you do, I'd be glad to be on. I said, Sam, I'd love to have you on. He has become very vocal about his faith publicly, no matter what it costs him. Now, folks, I want you to listen to me. Hear me, please. The reason Sam got saved had nothing to do with this guy right here. All he did was come into a service where he heard the Word of God and heard the Gospel. The reason, humanly speaking, Sam got saved was my brother-in-law. You know what they did? They just loved him to Jesus. They just showered him with love. There is no love in the Muslim faith, not really. And he saw something that he had never seen. He saw reality of Jesus being lived out in the life of another human being. And he came to the Lord. What I'm trying to tell you is this. Though my brother-in-law is not a perfect guy, my sister-in-law not perfect lady, they're wonderful Christians, but they're motivated by what motivated Jesus. And that's people. It is my prayer that when this wonderful group of young people departs tonight, that you'll go back to your homes and to your respective churches, motivated like never before, to speak up boldly and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us tonight? Help us, Lord, not to have just heard this evening, but Lord, help us to heed what we've heard. Lord, your word says if we're just a hearer of the word, but we're not a doer of it, we set ourselves up for the most subtle and insidious of all deceptions. We deceive our own selves. Self-deception is so cunning. So, Father, I pray we wouldn't just hear, but, Lord, we would heed. May we not just have listened over the last couple of days, but, Lord, may we live what we've listened to. May we put the word into practice. Father, about this most important topic, the master's motivation, I pray everyone in this room that know you, knows you as Savior, 
that we would, Lord, be motivated like never before by what motivated you. And that's a lost world. Now, friends, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. There's been a lot of decisions made over the last day and a half. That's beyond exciting to me to watch young people, as Pastor said, step down around this altar and say, Lord, you've spoken to my heart and I'm yielding to you in this area. It's been wonderful. But for the sake of this two-day conference, it's all come down to this. What are we going to now do with what God's taught us during these days? How are we going to live differently? Now I want to lay a proposition out before everyone in this room, the young people and those of us that are older. If tonight God has spoken to your heart, if over the course of the last day and a half plus, God has spoken to your heart, and you see, I, I understand, I understand, Brother Kistler, where it all goes together. It comes down to us being a witness for our Lord. That's why we're here. It does come down to that. Us being motivated by what motivated Jesus. If you see that and you understand it, and you'd be willing to do something about what you see and understand, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to be willing to do something tonight. If you would be willing to say, Lord, I see it, I understand it. And you being my helper, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to be more focused on what motivated you, and that's people. Folks, they're all around us. We meet them every day. Problem is we get so accustomed to seeing lost people that we no longer see them as Jesus sees them, as in need of a Savior. What I'm going to ask you tonight is will you be willing from this night on with the help of God to see people not as a body that just happens to possess a soul. Would you see them as God sees them? As a living soul that just happens to have a physical body. The part we see, whether that physical body has a smile or a frown, the part we see, whether that physical body speaks kindly to us or whether it's rude and gruff to us, that's not important. Behind the body is a living soul. Will you after tonight, with the help of God, see people like Jesus sees them? As a soul that's going to spend eternity somewhere. And with the help of God, will you commit? Will you commit with the help of God to speak up more boldly? more courageously, to not be afraid of their countenance, but become motivated by what motivated Jesus. That's my plea. If you would be willing to say, yes, Brother Dave, I see it. And if God will help me, from this night on, I'm going to be motivated by what motivated Jesus. People who need the Savior. If you'd be willing to commit to that, to become motivated by what motivated Jesus, I wonder if you'd be willing to do this. Now, I know I'm asking you to do something. I believe the Word of God has got to be applied and we've got to act on it. If you'd be willing to be motivated by what motivated Jesus and live differently after tonight and see people as lost souls who need a Savior and you'd be willing to speak up more boldly and witness to them, Care more deeply about them. I wonder if you'd be willing to get up from where you're seated and join me here in this altar and tell God that. Lord, it is my intent when I leave tonight to be motivated by what motivated you. Would you be willing to do that? If you would, I invite you to join me here in the altar and tell God that. God bless you guys and ladies. God bless you, ladies. Not just young people, but adults as well. I see it, Lord. I see it. There's people everywhere that need you. And they are. And after tonight, Lord, I'm going to be motivated with your help by what motivated you. That's people who need you. Jesus has no other lips than us. The gospel's not going to be communicated by angels. Jesus needs feet and hands and lips. He needs people to tell the message. That's us. That's our mission. 
Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, I also thank you for these dear ones that have listened tonight, some of whom are gathered around this altar. Lord, you've spoken to all of us. Lord, you've challenged me through these young people. Lord, I came here wanting to be a blessing to them, but Lord, they've been a blessing to me. I thank you for every one of them. I thank you for every adult in this room and in this church that loves you. I thank you, Lord, for Brother Steve. Lord, I thank you for Brother Carl. I thank you, Lord, for Pastor. I thank you, Lord, for others whose names I could call that have been a blessing to my life. I thank you, O oh God, for this church. And I pray, O oh God, that you would help us. Help us, Lord, from this night on to be more than just good folks. May we be people that are motivated by what motivated you. May we get our eyes off of the things of this world as the song says that's being played. And Lord, may we see what's really important, which is a lost world that needs the gospel. So equip us and help us to that end, I pray. And Father, we'll thank you and give you great glory. No, Lord, even tonight if we stop to fuel up a car, or tomorrow, Lord, if we go to a market, Lord, may we have a smile on our face and joy in our heart. And may we be quick to speak a word of witness. Lord, may we arm ourselves, I pray, with gospel leaflets and be prepared when you open the door to hand one of those out. May we even look for occasions, opportunities to share the gospel via gospel leaflet. Father, help us, I pray, to lift up our eyes as you said for us to do and look out onto the fields and realize they're white already to harvest. Lord, we'll give you glory for it all. In Jesus' precious name, I do pray and ask these things. Amen. Now, dear friends, you're welcome as soon as you're done praying here to return to your seat. Please, though, understand, I'm not rushing you. You take as long as you need. This is your time with God. There's no rush. I want to share one last thing with you, though, before Brother Larry closes. Right before Christmas, I made a trip to Washington, D.C. for a very important meeting. One of my dearest friends on the planet is a U.S. congressman named Paul Brown from the state of Georgia. Paul is one of the most vibrant Christians I've ever met. As soon as he was elected to the United States Congress, as soon as he got to D.C., he walked into the House of Representatives chamber, which is the chamber that has 425, excuse me, 435 desks in it. And Paul walked up to the podium and he gave his entire testimony to all the members of Congress. By the way, you can go to YouTube and just type in Paul Brown. It's spelled B-R-O-U-N, not B-R-O-W-N, B-R-O-U-N. Paul Brown talks about his faith, and you can watch the entire thing. It's powerful. You talk about courage. That's courage. While I was in D.C. for this important meeting, I called Paul and I said, Paul, I'm in town. Could we do lunch? He said, well, I'm on the floor of the house and I'm casting a vote for something vitally important. He said, where are you? I said, I'm out in front of the Capitol building. He said, hang on, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Sure enough, he comes out, he meets me. And uh, Brother Larry, I shouldn't have done this, but he said, now look, we, we're going to have lunch together. We can go one of three places. We can go to the Capitol Visitor Center, which is just you know, below ground right there in front of the Capitol. He said, that's a little bit spendy. I said, I know I've eaten there before. He said, we can go just off Capitol Hill to a restaurant called Bull Feathers, which is kind of a local watering hole where guys will go and eat. I've eaten there. Nice place. He said, or we can eat in what's called the House Members Dining Room. I said, where is that? He said, it's right up there on the House side of the Capitol. Well, I've never eaten in the House members dining room. I said, kind of really knowing which was closer, I said, which is the closest? He said, the house members dining room. I said, let's eat there. He said, okay, so here we go. I thought this will be an opportunity for me to get in there. So sure enough, we go up the steps. Now, normally you have to go through security to get into the Capitol building like you go through security at an airport. You have to take, you know, almost everything off. I feel like I have to disrobe, you know, whenever I go to an airport to get on the plane, take your belt off, your shoes off, your jacket off and all of that. Well, normally that's how you have to do to get inside the Capitol building. But see, we're with Congressman Paul Brown, who has a little round pin on his lapel that identifies him as a U.S. congressman. So as long as we're with him, preacher, we don't have to take our belt off, our shoes off. Wherever he goes, we go. So we go up the steps. He walks right past the guard. He says, these folks are with me, so they don't ask us to take anything off, show anything. We just walk right on in. 
We go into this beautiful, pristinely beautiful dining room. And Brother Larry, they served that day for lunch fried chicken. It was incredible. I mean, finest fried chicken I have ever had. And by the way, I'm way beyond worrying about getting the grease on my clothes. I don't care now. I don't have to impress anybody. So we ate fried chicken in the house members dining room. Now, here's the cool thing. When you're in the building, you're in the building. It means we have the run of the... I can go, Brother Larry, pretty much anywhere I want to go. Now, here's the deal. I'm wearing a blue pinstripe suit. I've got a white shirt on, got a nice red tie. I've got a hanky in my pocket. I think a lot of people... In fact, one guy told me, I thought you were a congressman yourself. Well, I'm not. But anyway, I'm dressing the part. And so we're inside the building, and we just walked around, and I thought, I'm going to see if I can get down onto the actual floor, the chamber. They call it the well there of the house chamber, if I can actually get onto the floor. Well, as we got close to it, here's the two doors leading in there, and there's congressmen, congresswomen going in and out, people I'd seen on TV, recognized many of them and we couldn't actually get into the building because they have what's called a sergeant at arms standing there and they're big bruising guys man and if you go and don't have one of those little things on your lapel they stop you immediately and say back this way so I knew I wasn't going to get past them so we just stood there and we watched as guys went in and out in and out in and out finally a guy walks past me I'll call his name most of you have never seen him but we see him on TV all the time in, in the United States his name is Elijah Cummings He's a congressman from Maryland. Elijah and I have very little in common. He does not know Christ as his Savior. He is extremely, extremely liberal in his worldview. But he walked right past me. I thought, here's my chance. So I said, Congressman Cummings. He turned and looked at me. I said, hi, my name's Dave Kistler. I said, I'm with Hope Ministries International. And I'm up, up here on the hill for, a, for, a, for an important meeting. He said, well, what brings you to the hill? What meeting are you in? Well, I, I didn't want to tell him what meeting I was there for because he is in diametric opposition to that meeting. And that went into our conversation. So I said, well, I'm here for something. It really doesn't matter. But it's important to me. I'm here. I said, uh, Congressman, I've seen you on TV. I just wanted to shake your hand and get acquainted. He said, so, sir, you, you, you are a what with Hope Ministry International? I said, I'm an evangelist. Man, he picked up on that immediately. Listen to this. He said, my mom and my dad were both preachers in Georgia when I was growing up. I said, no kidding. He said, yeah. I said, well, tell me a little bit about that. Well, he launched into a little bit of his background and how he grew up in Georgia. And for about 15 to 20 minutes, I'm standing there talking to a man who basically hates the gospel. However, however, the Lord allowed a wonderful thing to happen. He did not get saved, but I was able to stand there during that 20 minutes and just share with him through what I do as an evangelist, just sort of pepper my conversation, sprinkle it with the gospel. Everybody know what I'm talking about? And just share it with him. And you know what? He never got mad. He listened to every word. And then when we parted, he said this to me. He said, thank you for what you're doing. Please continue coming up here and doing it. And I thought, well, I'm going to clip that coupon sometime. Yes, I'll keep coming up here and doing it absolutely with your encouragement I'm going to do it anyway but with your encouragement that's an extra incentive to keep coming up here and doing it the point is this folk he is antagonistic to the gospel but you know what he needs Jesus are you with me I don't agree with him on virtually anything but my political beliefs is not what's important his soul is what's important Let's get past all the exterior and start seeing people as what they are, a soul that needs a Savior. Amen? And let's reach out to them.